Hello and welcome to Broadcast, the official radio show and podcast of the Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I am your host, Clabotini. And I'm your co-host, Ariel Frame. And today we have, uh, we are meeting with Alisa Moore. Thank you for being here, Alisa. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Um, so, Alisa, you are a PhD student in anatomy and cell biology, is that right? Yeah, so I'm in my second year right now, so I have a little bit of research experience under my belt. Still a ways to go. Nice. That will be an interesting conversation then. Um, can you describe a bit what is your research about? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm looking in broad terms at how the skull develops. So how the cells that started in the embryo is very unspecialized cells that can become anything from like bone, cartilage, muscles, nerves, how they choose to become the bones and the cartilages of our skull. Interesting. And so how do a cell decide? <laughs> how does the cell decide? So there's a lot of factors to it. That's actually what we're trying to figure out. Yeah. So there's a lot of decisions that a cell needs to make. And basically as time progresses, the cell makes decisions like, oh, am I going to be a neuron or nerve, or am I going to be a bone? And then as it goes down that line, let's say the bone line, it will say, okay, I know I want to be a bone cell. Do I want to become cartilage first or do I want to go right into bone? And so it, as time goes on, it gets more and more specific. That's really interesting. So like our cells kind of have, they're all related, I guess. I mean, we all came from one cell at some point. So cer certainly <laughs> all the cells are related, but you can actually track the lineage just like you would like a family tree. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. And actually the animals I use, the mice I use, help us trace those lineages. So we use these uh, very fancy mice that we basically call them glowy mice, but um, the, the proper term is transgenic. And what they do is they have a marker for very specific cells and cells of this specific lineage will actually light up um, glow green under a microscope. So we can tell looking at the color that the cells emit where they came from in um, embryonic development. Wow. So do you have mice with different shades of green, depending if you are more from one side compared to the other? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, unfortunately, our mice don't glow in regular light. Um, they're all just um, cute little mice with black fur. But um, once you look at their tissues under a microscope, then you can see um, how many of these different green cells they have, which is really interesting. Cool. So this this mouse uh, that I presume was generated in, in your lab, um, uh, why, why uh, this marker? Uh, why that lineage? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the marker itself is tagging a specific embryonic cell type known as neural crest cells. And these are kind of unique. If anyone's heard about like the three germ layers from high school biology, you think of endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm. The neural crest cells are sometimes considered that fourth germ layer, and they're only present in vertebrates. So things like us, mice, fish, frogs, all have neural crest cells, but things like fruit flies don't. So they're kind of unique that way evolutionarily. But what's interesting about these cells as well is they actually start out as part of your very early nervous system. And then they bleb off what's gonna become your spinal cord and brain and they migrate throughout the body. So the ones I'm looking at specifically go into your skull, particularly the face, but there's ones that become the pigment cells in your skin and parts that become nerves. 
receptors than the cells that support nerves. So they're very interesting in that way. They start in one part of your body, but they actually can go anywhere and become almost anything. I mean, it makes me wonder. I mean, it's like, how, how, how was it determined <laughs> in, through evolution that those cells were the ones that related? Like wh why bone neurons and and skin like I, i'm not sure what 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 how those they seem really different is there something that connects the function of those types of cells that's like not obvious on the front on the face of it yeah that's a great question and i will preface this with i'm not an evolutionarily biologist but from the readings i've done it seems to be that a lot of this has to do with um both how vertebrates feed so we think about, for example, predators, how they eat their food, how they sense their food as well, because, you know, you think of our faces, they're very different from a fruit fly's face and the types of vision we have are very different. And then in terms of pigment, you think of things like birds, right? They have all these different beautiful pigments in their feathers and to help them attract mates. So it seems to be a very much a survival and a propagation thing from what I've read. So they are, if I understand correctly, there are different evolutive pressure that push a cell to become more something compared to something else, depending on what is the function of the, of the role of that specific cell. Uh, that I'm not too sure <laughs> on. Um, tricky question. Yeah, it's a tricky question for sure. Um, I, but yeah, basically I'll everything comes back to evolution in the end when it comes to things like this, right? So yeah, so you're the studying, pressure to, oh, go ahead. So you're studying one cell of a, one of a cell that can become basically whatever other cell we have in our body. So I'm guessing because a cell itself cannot take decision on its own, it doesn't have brain, doesn't have neuron. So it's received probably a signal that will tell it what to become. Do you know what kind of signal that can be? Well, that's what we're trying to figure out. And part of how we're actually kind of trying to decipher that is we're actually disrupting those normal processes. So with our glowy mice, what I'm doing are two different things. I'm altering their genetics. So um, some of them have um, missing proteins in these neural press cells that make it harder for them to communicate with each other. And other ones we're doing um, quote unquote environmental disruption. So this can be anything like in the womb. So for example, we're actually in the pregnant mice, we're giving them a high dose of alcohol early in pregnancy to disrupt the neural crest cells in their babies. I guess that that seems like definitely things that <laughs> neural crest cells are gonna need or development, developing babies and their, their skulls are gonna need. Um, you, you mentioned earlier that your focus was on the bone uh, portion of the neural crest lineage. Um, why the bone? Uh, and, and yeah, I guess why bone, why skull? Yeah. So, uh, one of the interesting things about, um, the skull in general is that your skull is made from two basic, uh, cell types at, if we go back to the very basic embryonic lineages. So I've been talking about neural crest cells a lot, but I've also been talking about I talked briefly about mesoderm. So everything in the, in the front of your skull, so parts of part that cover your brain and the entirety of your face, those are all neural crest cell derived. 
but the back of your skull and the part that actually holds up your brain, those are mesoderm derived. So we're choosing the disruptions that we have chose because they specifically target the neural crest, the face and all those derivatives more than the mesoderm, the more, I guess, primal or evolutionarily older parts of the skull. And the reason why we're looking at the skull is because if you think evolutionarily, our face versus an elephant's face versus a bird's face is very different. And a lot of that is because of those neural crest derived facial bones. But also on the other end, when you think of disease, you think of things like cleft palate and where there's um, the separation between your nose and your mouth isn't fully formed. So babies tend to, when they're trying to feed, they tend to actually inhale some of the milk. So that's a big problem, right? But that's also, that palate is also a neural crest derived structure. And when we look at birth defects in children where it affects the skull, most of these birth defects are in the face or in the vault, which are again, those neural crest derived structures. So they seem to be very, in terms of evolution, they're very easy to make different things like beaks and trunks and faces. But in terms of disease, their fall is also very vulnerable compared to those more posterior or more, um, those older parts of the skull. Interesting. So it's kind of like a, um, like a marker. Uh, you can see, you know what, um, lots of things that might change uh, if you have something going wrong with development. But um, one thing that's going to be pretty obvious is if, is if your face is something, something up with your face. Exactly. And that's really interesting with our um, alcohol mice, especially. There's someone else in my lab who's looking at their behavioral deficits down the line. But when people are typically diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which is what happens when the mom uh, drinks alcohol during pregnancy and it affects the baby, one of those big markers that the doctors use is actually the facial features. That's cool. So basically you're submitting the mother to different kinds of environment, stress or alcoholism. And then you're looking at what, is the, what are the effects on the uh, young development. Yeah, exactly. So I'm looking at the overall structure of the skull using micro CT. So if you think of, if you've ever had a CT scan or a CAT scan where they do that, they put you in the big machine and they scan your organs and they can recreate that in a little 3D picture. We're doing that on a very smaller scale with these mouse skulls. And we can look at, uh, for example, the shape of the bone, how much bone there is and other factors like that. That's cool. Yeah, it's very fun. I like to, it's a very fun part of my research. Um, I want to know uh, what you find cool about your research, but I, I'm also wondering now that you mentioned scanning the mice, um, you know, part of the reason I think we do that kind of imaging with humans is that obviously we, some of us have had CT scans done and we survived. <laughs> Whereas in mice, I mean, part of the reason why we, we use these models is so we can look deeply with methods that wouldn't be prudent to use on humans. So I'm wondering after you do this scan, you get a nice image of while they're alive. Now they're, they continue to be alive. What, what do you do with the rest of their life? And are there other measures you take with these? Um, what did you call them? Globy mice? Glowy mice. And unfortunately um, these mice, um, the resolution we use causes such a high radiation that we actually euthanize them before we image them. So unfortunately these ones don't get to grow up. So they're actually separate from the ones that my lab mate is using for behavioral studies, but um, 
So, so then yeah. what do, what's your other methods that you do with these mice? So my other methods, um, hopefully down the line, I've, we've talked about bone a lot, but uh, the other part is cartilage. So you think about your ears, you think about the tip of your nose, that's all cartilage. And in areas of the skull, that cartilage actually dictates where the bone is going to go and how the bone is going to grow. So after we have these skulls and we scan them for your basic bone scan, we want to stain them with something that will make the CT scanner pick up the cartilage easier. So they can then see how the cartilage in the skull is um, developed as well. Okay. And so you can measure both the bones, the already formed bones compared to the cartilage. Can you differentiate the cartilage that is kind of already formed versus a growing cartilage? Or are the mice too young and every bone are still growing? So at the time points, I'm using all the bones are growing, but what's nice with micro CT is that you can actually say, I only want to look, because micro CT is basically measuring um, the density of a tissue, right? And bone being made out of like calcium and everything like that is going to be a lot more dense than the surrounding tissue. So you can say, I only want to look at really dense tissue. And so you can see the properly formed bone while leaving out some of the semi-formed bone. But the other thing we're using as well is this technique called aminofluorescence. We're basically taking very thin slices of the skull and then staining it with specific proteins to look at specific markers. So I could say, I want to look at bones. So I'm going to use this protein to look at the cells of the bone. Or I want to look at cartilage, so I'm going to use this different protein to look at the cells of the cartilage. And those proteins are also fluorescent as well. So we might use a different color. We might say, I want to look at bone, but I'm going to use a red color. And then I can look at that with also my green glowy mice and say, these green cells, these green neural crest cells are expressing this red bone marker. So we know that their tissue origin and also what they've become, which is really interesting. So do you have tissue that is not green then? I'm, I'm, I'm a bit confused. I'm guessing whatever is not green do not come from this cell that can become everything. Exactly, yeah. Okay. So in our glowy mice, only the neural crest cells are going to be green oh, yeah. and then everything else is not, yeah. So the, um, so it sounds like you have a good um, toolbox there. You've got lots of ways of looking at different cell types it, at different locations and, and, and that really cool method of determining the, the lineage of the cells uh, starting at the neural crest there. Um, now, so now that you have this model and you know what you want to do to it uh, and you highly suspect it's going to disrupt things pretty badly, um, what do you hope to learn from, from looking at that? Like you'll know something went wrong, but then what's the take home message on that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so right now I'm kind of starting at my um, oldest time point, but going forward, we're going to start taking mice at earlier and earlier stages of development to figure out, okay, I'm seeing less bone in the nose when they're born. When does that start? Is it something that's happening before the neural crest cells even get into the area that's going to become the nose? Is it something that they get there just fine, but they have trouble becoming bone cells? Is it something that they're not becoming bone at all? They're becoming cartilage. So by looking at those earlier and earlier time points, we're going to hopefully figure out where 
when exactly these disruptions we're creating are actually affecting these cells and if they're affecting some of those cell fate decisions. I can imagine um, with fetal alcohol, that's certainly the when question is probably really important. Um, I imagine that uh, women who are pregnant um, and may be exposed to alcohol for whatever reason uh, might be worried. When is the worst case scenario? When am I going to? When am I going to be most careful uh, that that I shouldn't be exposing? I mean, maybe maybe this is a question that that you could answer actually. Yeah. So there has been a lot of research done on this because fetal alcohol is something that's important to people. Um, so our mouse model, we actually give them alcohol very early in pregnancy. It's the equivalent to um, a, a woman who would be about three to four weeks pregnant. So we're giving them a dose that's like almost equivalent to a bottle of vodka for one of us. And we're giving it to them at the equivalent of three to four weeks gestation, which is before most people know that they're pregnant. So it's, it's one of those things that um, it's a timeline that you can't really say, oh, I'm, I know I'm pregnant. I'm going to stop drinking. It's, it's one of those time points where before you even know you're pregnant, you might still be drinking because you don't know you're pregnant yet. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So what happened then? What do you have any results then? If I have some preliminary results, I recently got my first batch of alcohol babies back and it's really interesting. I have two mice from the same mom. One, you look at their skull you, with the CT scan, you, you wouldn't be able to tell. But the other one, um, specifically, again, those neural press-derived bones, um, in the nose and in the face, you see that there's a lot less bone tissue there. And so it's interesting, too, to see within one, within one litter, within one pregnancy, the variation that you can get with, um, with this alcohol. Maybe a very dumb question. Could it be associated with ever a sex effect, like female or male are more affected or like an order of, of um, being born uh, that could affect that? If, yeah, I, I don't know how to explain a bit more, but do you know why one would be more affected than the other? Uh, right now I don't, because I've got a sample size of two, Yeah, but we are collecting both male and female offspring to see if there is a sex effect. Um, your question of order of being born is a little harder because I come in at eight, nine in the morning, all the mice are already born. So I don't know who was born when, but um, we're looking at things like how many mice are in a litter? Is it a small litter? Is it a big litter? How long was the mom pregnant? Was she pregnant for uh, 18 days, which is relatively uh, small time for the mice or 21 days, which is a relatively long time for the mice. And then also the, the actual weight of each um, pup. If it's a smaller pup, does it have less bone? If it's a bigger pup, does it have more bone? Those types of things are all things that we're taking into consideration. You know, I think uh, I've got a million and one questions that, that I can ask about, you know, alcohol uh, <laughs> and development. And um, I don't want to get too far, I think, away from your expertise. And I know that uh, we don't have all the time in the world. So um, my next question is, not necessarily about uh, the technical details about this work, but um, about you and your passion. You know, it takes a lot of 
time and energy to be a graduate student. Uh, and we pick very carefully the type of work that we do. So I'm wondering um, what caught you interested in bones and development and this type of work? Yeah, absolutely. So my love of bones goes way back to when I was a kid. My mom was an x-ray technician when I was growing up. So the idea of getting to look at bones all day and see things that you can't see with your eyes was really cool. And then in terms of development, I think that's just a love I kind of got on as I was going through university. I took a few development courses and there were some really strange things that could happen when you mutated some of those genes that are really important to development. There are genes where instead of having an upper jaw and a lower jaw, if you mutate it, you have two upper jaws. And it's just really interesting things like that. Like how does one little gene make that big of a difference? That's the kind of stuff that drove me into the developmental biology. I get, uh, was this the, the same type of work that you did in your master's? Maybe can you speak a little bit about what you did there? Yeah, so for my master's, I also did this at Western. I was in the clinical anatomy master's, which was a program that designed you to designed to help you learn how to both do research and how to teach at a university level. So I didn't do a traditional thesis, but I did do a research project. And my research project was again on mice, not the super fancy glowy mice, but a very different mouse model that mimicked a condition in humans known as oculodental digital dysplasia or ODDD. Basically people, yeah. Basically people with ODDD, they have a lot of um, facial features. They have very little enamel on their teeth, which means that um, their, their teeth aren't as strong to bite into things. Sometimes their fingers are fused and they often have a lot of other problems as well, but we were interested in those facial features. So what I did for my master's was I looked at the lower jaws of different mice with different mutations that caused ODDD to figure out how that, um, to figure out how the, the very early jaw development occurred in these people compared to, or and compared to these mice compared to litter mates who didn't have mutation. So you have a research that is really applied or really related to uh, to human medicines. That's that's cool. Yeah, it's not quite um, bench top to clinic, but um, I'm looking at some very interesting things that do have implications for people who might have fetal alcohol syndrome or anything like that. Right. So it's interesting. It's a, it's a way I can contribute to to human knowledge and the good of the world, I suppose. <laughs> Nice. Uh, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it's always interesting to hear about uh, people's passions and how they differ <laughs> and people get really deep on quite niche, uh, niche fields. So, and I'm glad that you, you know, you found something that you're extra intrigued in uh, and you can follow that along and you've now followed it through your master's to your PhD um, using um, it sounds like some of the, some similar techniques did you find, um, well, I guess my question is, um, how do you feel you were prepared for your PhD with your master's? Uh, I asked this because a lot of people, well, some people debate going into their PhD without a master's, um, maybe some fields find that weird, but it's possible. So I'm wondering, um, 
how you feel about your master's in regards to your PhD. Yeah, absolutely. I wouldn't say um, it prepared me specifically with the techniques. There is a little bit of overlap. I'm doing so many techniques now in my PhD that I never would have dreamed of in my master's. But I think it really prepared me in terms of switching gears from like an undergrad study to get a grade mindset to like, okay, I'm an independent person. I am in charge of this project. I need to manage my own schedule and everything like that. And it also prepared me in terms of being able to communicate um, both in presentations and posters, um, on paper, all those sorts of things. So I think it really prepared for the mindset, what I say would be the big thing that the master's prepared me for this degree. Sounds like you were definitely in the right mindset. <laughs> could you, could you uh, just for fun, tell us uh, what, what the, a day in the life of your work is uh, when you're working with these mice kind of in the moment, you know, you get to the lab and then, and then what? Okay. So first thing is I go up to the mouse room and because they're all housed in these little rooms in a very specific part of campus. And I check on everyone. I have my little set of mice that I'm using for experiments. And some of them, you know, I, I like to think of it almost like as prenatal check-ins for the, for the mom mice. I'll weigh them and say, oh, have you gained this much weight since the last time I checked? That's good, that's bad. Um, I'll check them to see, oh, you know, you look like you're really big. I'm gonna make sure to check to see if you have babies in the upcoming days. And then if they have babies, I'm doing checks on the babies too, looking to see if they're male or female, their weights and all that before I get into some of the wet lab benchtop stuff. Nice. Uh, that, uh, so that, that's the life of checking. Yeah. I mean, it almost is like a little, uh, like a doctor for the, for the mice <laughs> checking, uh, what, what's the, I don't know what the name of the doctor is, but the, the baby doctor, <laughs> the one that, the one that checks on them. Um, pediatrics, OBGYN. <laughs> yeah. OB, OB, the gynecologist, I think, uh, maybe would be the one, but, uh, the pediat pediatrician is, uh, probably just for the kid after, but you also kind of act as the pediatrician too, because you look at the babies after as well. Um, so yeah, you've got lots of uh, different techniques that you've got on your belt, a lot of experience, um, a lot of uh, training that you've gone through. And now um, what are you currently, currently doing? So I'm currently in the middle of writing my comprehensive exam right now. So over the past month or so, I've been writing. And then later this week, I'll submit it. And then in two weeks time, I'll defend it. So I've been doing a lot of thinking on things that aren't my research and I can't talk about, but <laughs> I'll be excited when it's done. Yeah. It's a question I was wondering because the comprehensive exam, not a lot of people know about it. It's something that only PhD students have to do. And for little that I know, the way of doing it differ between departments. So how, how is the comprehensive exam in your, uh, in your department? So in my department, the basis of it is you write a 10 page grant that's supposed to cover a, a five year period. Okay. And the first step is you choose some mentors that can be in the department or outside the department to help you write a summary page for that grant, a one page summary of what you plan to write. After that's submitted, you do four weeks on your own, actually writing that 10-page grant. And then two weeks after that grant is submitted, you orally defend it in front of a panel of, I believe, three people. 
So it's a little intense. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess but- that's, uh, that's, that's how you get tested. I mean, I, I imagine the reason that PhDs have to do it is because if you're going that deep into academia, then you're preparing to be potentially somewhere in academia where you actually have to apply for those grants and then you have to know how to, how to, uh, justify your work <laughs> very deeply. <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. Good luck. Also, oh, sorry. It Go will ahead. also force students to learn about something they didn't know, not stay focused in their own uh, field. So it's opening maybe their minds to other possibility. And I'm guessing this kind of grant, you could potentially use it later for postdoc or for the research collaboration. Yeah, potentially. One of the pieces of advice I was actually given when I was in that mentorship phase was uh, pick something that you could see yourself doing as a postdoc. So it really is kind of um, getting you prepared for that future career if you choose to go that route. And it's definitely a good exercise. Yeah. And I guess for, for some, they might learn yeah, you know what, maybe that isn't the best idea because <laughs> I actually did something that was quite different from my work and ended up going, you know, it was a cool idea. Maybe that cool, that work is cool, but I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, yeah, so now you're, you know, I hope that you do well in your comps. Uh, good luck for that. It's a quite an intense procedure, but you you, you sound well-versed uh, in, in generally the work you're doing and uh, able to hold your own, I think. So uh, I'm confident you're going to do great. Um, and if other people want to find out uh, what you're up to later and how you might have done on your comprehensive exam or just want to find out what, what it's like to be a PhD student in developmental biology, anatomy and cell biology, um, how could people find you on the internet? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm not big on social media, but I'm happy to plug my uh, Western email. So it's just A-M-O-O-R-6-6 at uwo.ca. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good luck with the rest of your research. Thank you. This has been Gradcast, the official radio show and podcast of a Society of Graduate Students at Western University. I've been your host, Claire Bottini, and my co-host was Ariel Frem. We've been speaking with Alisa Moore, and this episode was also produced by Ariel Frem. If you would like to be involved in the show or to get in contact with us, you can contact us at uh, gradcast at sogs.ca. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at Gradcast Radio. To listen to us, we are on Radio Western 94.9 FM. You can also find all of our episodes on our website at gradcast.ca or on podcasts like Podbeam, iTunes, and Spotify. Alternatively, selected podcasts have been uploaded on YouTube at Gradcast Radio. Thank you again, Elisa. Thank you.